Open up your Bibles once again to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And it does appear by God's kind providence, dear church, that we will end chapter 1 today. We will end chapter 1. We have been in chapter 1 for, it seems I didn't look at the calendar, but at least for, I think, two months now. And it's been a real blessing. There's a lot of gems here in this chapter to wade through. And we get uh, down here to verses 13 and 14. And last week, after just plowing through verses 5 through 12 and all of this Old Testament Scripture that the inspired writer was using to substantiate the superiority of Christ over the angels. We got to verse 13 and 14. It just was not going to be able to do it justice. Um, and so we put it off to this week. And uh, here we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 1. And today we endeavor to look at verses 13 and 14 together. So to help set the context, I'm going to read chapter 1 in its entirety. And then we'll look together today at verses 13 and 14. So follow along as I read. The word of the Lord says, God who at sundry times in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had purged, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And all the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But under the sun, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Set on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation? And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. I want to start off our introductory thoughts by quoting for you Romans 8.18 and hopefully it will become apparent why I'm going to this verse to start off a message with a particular focus 
on the current station of Christ at the right hand of the majesty on high. Romans 8.18, the inspired Apostle Paul wrote, The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Here the Apostle Paul very clearly recognizes that those who have been given, as he says in Romans 8, the very first fruits of the spirits, those who are awaiting the redemption of their bodies, are indeed going to experience afflictions and sufferings. But that's not all. Notice in what I decided that the sufferings are never to be taken as the end all. It's never to be taken as the end all lot for those who are identified by Paul as the heirs of God. Identified as the joint heirs of Christ. No, rather, their end and their final destination is the glory and the presence, being being in glory and in the presence of Jesus Christ, who we read today just now in Hebrews chapter 1, is setting at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I don't know about you, but this week particularly in my life, I'm quite um, just frankly uh, appreciative of Paul's honesty. I'm appreciative of Paul's recognition that we who are followers of Jesus, who is sitting at the right hand of power and glory, at the right hand of the majesty on high, that we will suffer, that we will have uh, afflictions, because it helps me contend with the reality of my own Christian existence and my own Christian experience, which I hope you would agree includes at times trials, pains, hurts, tears, and sufferings. However, what Paul, by inspiration of the Spirit, also does is he points our casted down souls upwards to the ultimate hope of Christ, doesn't he? And now that's exactly why what we're coming to in verse 13 is so important today. This doctrine of the current station and current session of Christ in power at the right hand of God's glory because we're still on this side of glory, aren't we? We haven't arrived here yet in the glory that Paul mentioned. Thus, when any of us are suffering from soul sadness, we are to be reminded in the Scriptures that it is Christ in this session that the writer of Hebrews is talking about upon His throne and upon a throne that is a throne of power and of rule, of dominion and mercy. And He's there for our mercy and for the benefit of our relief. So today we're going to focus much upon this current exalted station that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. We're going to focus much on this exalted station of the Son at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the emphasis of this, of course, comes as a climax as Paul's trying to build a case from the Old Testament Scriptures of why Jesus is so superior to the angels. And we don't have time to recap all of that, but there was something in this first century early church in their angelology and their theology of the angels that could possibly be confused with thinking that somehow or another, this may sound common to the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, that Jesus wasn't superior 
over the angels, but that he was somehow equal in his revelation from God to all of human history. So the inspired writer of Hebrews is trying to just build that case and flesh that out in their minds. And he comes to verse 13 in this climax of saying, look, one more time, one more scripture I want to give you of how the Son is exalted far above any of creation, even that of the glorious angels. And he does so by citing Psalm 110 in verse 1. In fact, that's what we have in verse 13. It is the inspired writer of Hebrews using the Old Testament Scriptures to put in front of their minds, many of them would have had a Septuagint, which had been the Old Testament translated in Greek, and they'd been like, oh yes, yes, I, I know Psalms 110. We know all about that. We grew up learning about Psalms 110. And, and it is as if it though, as though the inspired writer is saying, well then, to which of the angels can be said of what you know so much about, Psalms 110, 110 set on my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. So how are we going to approach this text? How are we going to unpack what is lying under the surface here of this Old Testament citation of Psalm 110? Well, first of all, uh, none of us grew up in rabbinical schools or any of that nature. Um, so I think it would be uh, appropriate for us to get some elementary level meaning of Psalm 110 underneath our feet. I don't know when's the last time you read Psalm 110 or studied it out. So we're going to very briefly just try to ascertain if this is so vital and so important. What does Psalm 110 really mean? What's it teaching? And after we do that, we're going to look at the nature as you see in your handouts the nature of the Son's current reign upon the throne. And we'll do that by considering the duration of this reign. When did it start and will it end? Question mark. And we'll consider what are the activities of the Son's reign upon the throne. So, let us just come here to Psalms 110 and get our feet stabled up underneath us a little bit before we even begin to try to understand why this writer is appropriating this psalm to the Son. Now, in your sermon notes, I've given you a lot of scriptures spelled out. And this is just to help really do what this inspired writer is doing, is to show us in the scriptures that the scriptures interpret the scriptures for us. Okay? And it helps you from flipping all back and forth in your Bibles. And so I'm giving that to you as a roadmap just to help us kind of go through the text and cite these passages which have been well familiar to these, uh, this original audience. So you have Psalms 110 there in front of you. Now you see immediately at verse number 1 in your sermon notes, that's what's being cited here in our text today, verse number 13, right? And it's a very short psalm. It's only seven verses. One theologian suggests that Psalms 110 is an undeniable place of being considered, quote, the substructure of all Christian theology. That's a pretty big statement. Psalms 110, these seven verses, the substructure of all Christian theology. But yet, he's not alone. There's a, another reliable commentator who describes Psalms 110, verses 1 through 7, as the text, quote, which most undergirds the writer of Hebrews' Christological affirmations or his understandings of Christ. Right? Psalms 110. Most undergirds his doctrine of Christ. Well, why would they say such a thing? 
Well, it is plausible because in the book of Hebrews alone, Psalms 110 is utilized in multiple places. We know, we've seen it already here in chapter 1 and verse 3, where the Son being at the right hand of the majesty on high is referred to. It's also used today in verse 13 where we're at. But then Psalms 110 is used in chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 7, verse 17 and 21. Again in chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And again in chapter 12, verse 2. Psalms 110 is. And thus it quickly becomes evident to us that this particular Old Testament psalm, it has to serve some vital role in our having a complete and a proper understanding of Christ. It serves as a substructure for the theology of Christ for the writer of Hebrews. And thus, by way of inference, it has to serve for us also a very important role in our understanding of the nature and the role of the eternal Son that's been talked about up until this point in Hebrews chapter 1. Therefore, we're going to briefly look at Psalms 110 and obtain at minimum, very minimally, a basic understanding of its meaning. Now, scholars are not entirely agreed on the exact occasion of why Psalms 110 was written by King David. Um, There's no explicit evidence of this happened, so he wrote it. Or that happened, and thus he was inspired to write it. So we really don't know what's surrounding David's life as he comes to write this psalm. But we do know it was written by King David. The Lord Jesus, he gives David accreditation for its authorship in Matthew 22, verses 43 and 44, where he cites Psalms 110 himself, particularly verse 1. However, there is strong evidence that points to the fact of some reason why David was inspired to write this. And it's in association with God's declaration of the covenant that he made with David's house back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which we looked at a little bit last week. So here's God coming to King David, and he's revealing to David this eternal, prophetical, glorious promise that he's going to initiate with David. God, in a sense, you say, condescends down and he comes to David and he says, not because anything good in you. If anybody knows the life of King David, he had his ups and downs. But because of what I'm wanting to accomplish for the sake of my people, I'm going to establish your house forever. And from your descendants, I'm paraphrasing 2 Samuel, we'll look at some of the aspects of it in a moment. I'm going to raise up from one of your descendants a master who shall be seated and exalted at my right hand of majesty on high. And so, in that light, it does make some sense of the occasion of what would inspire David to write such a messianic prophecy, you know, laden psalm as we have here in Psalm 110. Because the messianic overtones just jump right off of this psalm. Well, let's look at verse 1. You have it there in your sermon notes. Verse 1 of Psalms 110 that's being used today in our passage in Hebrews. The Lord, literally Jehovah, said unto my Lord, you know it's upper and lowercase, that could be translated faithfully as master. The Lord said unto my Lord, set thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Here David literally is prophesying Jehovah said 
unto my master, set thou here at my right hand until I make thine enemies your footstool. And immediately the question is, who can rightfully be called King David's master? Who could rightfully be called by David his own master? Who does David have in mind here is his king? Well, that's very easily discovered in the communication of the Davidic covenant that we just alluded to in 2 Samuel. Look in your notes there. This is when God's communicating his covenant with David. And it becomes very apparent who David considers as his king and as his master who will be exalted up to the right hand of Jehovah himself in such a prominent place of power and authority, even over King David. Verse 13, God promises David that this future master, this future Messiah, this future king shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for ever. Well, David knew well that this didn't mean an earthly kingdom. And any students of the Chronicles of History would see that the earthly throne of David, what? It fell away. It fell away. Right now it's in some very small fragment particle of dust somewhere in the Middle East, right? The year 70 AD made sure that that would never come to fruition in eternal earthly reign of King David. Verse 16 in this covenant, God said to David, thy house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever forever. Now, those who reject Christ, who are trapped in Judaism, they're still waiting for this. They believe that there's going to be um, a descendant of David, however they qualify that. They can't really tell you how they qualify that because all the genealogical records have been lost, right? And, and, and I've never heard a sufficient answer to logically think through these questions of how you're going to validate that this person is really from the line of David. Do you have a swab of, of King David that you can, you know, that's, that's in a petri dish and saved somewhere and you say, oh, that's a descendant of David. He's our earthly Messiah, therefore. And then they've had to adopt the idea that through what's called a theology of Zionism, that, oh, it's not a one-man Messiah, it's a nation that's the Messiah. You know, you just get into all kinds of, all kinds of hayfields about it. But beloved King David, when he's being communicated here by God that one of his descendants would come, he very well knew that it was a person. It was a person that was going to be risen up from his house that would do this. Verse 25 and 26, again, looking at the Davidic covenant as to try to understand what would motivate David in Psalms 110 to say that he had a king over him, that he had a master that would be elevated to such a prominent position of power. Well, verses 25 and 26, look in your sermon notes. And now, O Lord God, this is David's response. The word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as thou hast said. David knew that God was going to do this, not him. And let thy name be magnified forever, saying, Jehovah, the Lord of hosts, is the Lord God of Israel. Sorry, God over Israel. And let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. All of this you see, David clearly understood in some way. 
And in somehow that one of his descendants would be received and would be the recipient of a dignified honor of being raised to the right hand of Jehovah himself until all of his enemies were subdued. The meaning to David and the meaning subsequently to ancient Israel, unlike modern Israel today, it wasn't vague, beloved. They knew very clear. David and ancient Israel knew very clearly what was being communicated. That through David, a promised king, a promised Messiah would come and when he does, his throne and his kingdom would be established forever and never be taken from him. That's how they understood it. And that's why when Jesus came, they said, you're not our Messiah. They rejected him. They were expecting the earthly Messiah. You know, the sons of thunder, the John and James, they had some confusion about this. And all the early disciples had some confusion in some sense about Psalms 110 being fulfilled until they had to realize that Jesus' throne wasn't going to be an earthly throne. And then they were given greater spiritual understanding, greater, greater maturity. Now the psalm goes on, after 110, goes on to describe this Messiah, this king that David recognizes above him as executing the role of a king in verses 1 through 3, and also of a high priest in verses 4 through 7. Look at verse 2 there in Psalms 110, your sermon notes. It describes a rod and a scepter which is going to be used to execute rule or you could say be used to dominate his enemies. Verse 3, about this Messiah. We haven't even mentioned the name Jesus yet, have we? We're just trying to understand what was Psalms 110 meaning. And of course, David understood it to mean of the Messiah. And these are some elements now describing this Messiah in a kingly way, verses 1 through 3, and 4 through 7 in a priestly way. Look at verse 3. It's describing that this Messiah, who David recognizes his master, will not be alone or by himself. The verse says, verse 3, Psalms 110, Thy people shall be willing in that day of thy power. So the Messiah is going to be joined by his people in the day of his power. He's not going to be alone in his conquest mission or whatever he's uh, uh, doing here in these verses. And he will possess, possess, notice in verse 3 of Psalms 110, he will possess strength and invincibility in his mission. With the phrase, Thou, this master of David, has the dew of thy youth. That's an old Hebrew way of saying you're going to be strong. You're going to be successful in whatever you're setting out to do. So, Whoever this Messiah is, we see that he's going to be invincible in whatever conquest he set out to accomplish. Verse 4. Verse 4 describes, notice, a covenant that Jehovah God has made with David's master Messiah descendant. Look at the text. The Lord Jehovah has sworn and he will not repent. Meaning he will not change his mind. And so there is an eternal agreement from Jehovah to this Messiah that David recognizes that's his master, which will, you could say, guarantee the success of this king, of this future Messiah, right? Also, notice in verse 4 that the Messiah would serve not only as a warrior king, but also as a high priest. The text says he'll serve as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
And then verses 5 through 7, we don't have a lot of time to unpack Psalms 110. We're just wanting to get a, a basic description of what, it's, what it means and, and, and how it is being applied to the Messiah and why is the writer of Hebrews using it here today. Verses 5 through 7 closes by describing David's promised master, judging the nations and all of their rulers. And then, as if it were, after a long Hard conquest, refreshing himself after battle, after he's subdued all of his enemies. This is the meaning of Psalms 110 in a nutshell. A prophetic pronouncement of a king, priest, and messiah that Jehovah would appoint from the descendants, according to 2 Samuel and the Davidic covenant, from the descendants of the house of David, who would be exalted to a throne of power, strength, and conquest. It is amazing how people create so many complicated scenarios of how Jesus fulfills this. Verses 1 through 3, those activities being mentioned there, some say that's not taking place until Jesus returns a second time and is on the earth for a thousand years. He's not doing that right now. Well, is that the case? We'll get to that in a little bit. But my, my point is, is what we're seeing here in Psalms 110 that the writer of Hebrews is elevating up as something that's been accomplished is the fact that it is describing a Messiah, the one that will come and save Israel. That's what it's describing in a nutshell. So that's Psalms 110. Let's step away from Psalms 110 for a moment. And let us just briefly consider how this psalm is used in the New Testament, which causes theologians to say that what we just read about this promised Messiah, this this son of David that will come and will be exalted by Jehovah to rule and reign and do all of this work that we just talked about, let's look and see why theologians say that Psalms 110 serves as the superstructure of Christian theology. But wait a minute, I thought this Christian theology I just needed in my New Testament. Oh no. Remember last week we introduced the fact that we're being discipled here in Hebrews chapter 1, what's what's called the rule of faith. The rule of faith by which we look at all of Scripture and we use Scripture to substantiate and rest our doctrines upon. Not just, you know, one thing you read and, oh, uh, that, that means this, or that means that. No, 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 you search the Scriptures like a Berean. And that's exactly what this inspired writer has been doing over the last several verses since verse 5. What you have in your list there, the sermon notes, of how this Psalm 110, this superstructure of Christian theology pointing forward as David saw to one of his future descendants as being the one exalted by Jehovah, how it's listed in the New Testament all over the place. And we're not going to go through all of them because we would run out of time. But I do want to look at just two with you that I've given you in your sermon notes. Let's look and review together Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. Up until this point, we haven't mentioned the name Jesus. We've just described Psalm 10 and how David and the ancient Israelites would have understood it. Here in the context, we come to Matthew 22, 41 through 46 in your sermon notes. We have Jesus interacting with the Pharisees, which he was often doing during his earthly ministry. And notice why he asked them. Just a demonstration of his wisdom of how to handle these guys. Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Messiah? Whose son is he? 
And they said unto him, The son of David. And he saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? That is, Master, King. Saying, and here in verse 44, the Lord Jesus now cites Psalm 110 verse 1. Saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Set thou in my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David, he asks them a question now. He says, if David then call him master, king, you know, Lord, how is he then his son? That's unthinkable for a king to call his physical son his king, his master, right? Verse 46, and no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. I love that part. You know, Jesus just tied him up in a knot with their own misunderstandings of the kingdom and of the Messiah and things like this. Now, to be clear, what Jesus is doing here is he's demonstrating to them that this prophesied Messiah wasn't going to be just a man. He was going to be divine. That's what Jesus was really trying to nail home with them. But notice how he's using Psalms 110 there clearly to identify himself, isn't he? That's what he's doing. Well, has anyone besides Jesus identified himself? The liberal skeptic who would say, well, you know, Psalms 110, that was just a very commonly held uh, prophetic, Messiah prophetic psalm amongst the ancient Jews, even in the first century. And Jesus just kind of took that and said, ah, I'm going to, you know, tell everybody that I'm the fulfillment of that. What was there anyone else that was saying this? Or was he the lone quack out there that you know, these skeptics would have us to believe? Oh, there were other people that were saying it too who had witnessed the power and the glory of this divine man. And it testified and it was a witness to them that he is the promised son of David. That comes through on the day of Pentecost in our, our, our next example and our last one we're going to look at of how Psalms 110 was used in the New Testament. Look at tra- Acts chapter 2 here. You guys know the context, I'm sure. Peter here... He has uh, received a a, a tremendous outpouring, a measure, you you may say, of the Holy Ghost. And he is preaching with the power and authority. And in the middle of one of the greatest sermons, next to Stephen, I would argue, of the New Testament, Peter says in verse 32, look at your notes, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted here, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith of himself, the Lord, that is Jehovah, said unto my Lord, here Psalms 110 verse 1, set thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both what? Lord and Christ. There is a New Testament witness, and we'll stop there with any more examples of saying that who David saw clearly as being the Messiah from his house was the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can imagine those who were converted on that day, on that great day of Pentecost, you can imagine them hearing and it resonating in their ears that we have just killed the promised Messiah. We did it with our own hands. What fools, what blinded, hardened people we were. And some of them, the text says, they were pricked. 
in their hearts. You know, isn't that part and parcel of sharing the gospel with people? We've fallen into a horrible situation of evangelicalism over the last 50 years in our communicating in the gospel to remove the law from it and how the individual is actually responsible for nailing Jesus upon the cross. Now, allow me some theological latitude here. We know in the book of Acts that it was God himself that decreed his son would be offered. But beloved, it is not theologically wrong to say that my sins pierced his side, that my sins drove the stake through his hand upon the cross. And a lot of times we come to the gospel and the presentation of the gospel and it's as if we're trying to get someone, we're selling Jesus to them, you know? You know, you're having a real hard time in your marriage or, you know, you're having a real hard time in your personal life and Jesus can make it all better. Don't you know he loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Well, a lot of people would want to accept that. Who wouldn't want to come into a context in a situation that's going to improve their life, right? But notice on the day of Pentecost, That Peter here is preaching and telling them this was the promised one from the house of David that you killed, that you pierced. And Stephen's message was the same way. And the Spirit of God used that truth of their own hatred of God's love through the Messiah to pierce their heart and bring them to repentance while the others were left in a state of hardness. Well, all of this leads us into our next heading, dealing with the nature of of the Son's current reign upon the throne. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 is clearly clearly appropriating Psalms 110, verse 1, as referring to the Son, the eternal Son, Jesus Christ. Right? We look at the context and we look at the meaning of Psalms 110 and we see that it clearly is talking about the promised Messiah. We see Jesus in the New Testament appropriated this Psalm to Himself. We see that the inspired Apostle Peter on that great day of Pentecost appropriated it to Jesus. So church, is there any doubt in our minds? Psalms 110 verse 1 is talking about the present, risen, victorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is sitting at the right hand of God on high. No doubts, is there? Well, let's consider the nature of His present reign on this throne. Let's let's consider the duration first. And then we'll consider some of the activities of it. Notice in your notes there, I'm calling it the Son's current session. Session. And I'm doing that on purpose. This is a this is a kind of an older English word that refers to a time between a first meeting of a judicial body during deliberation, right? They've been given a task to do, something to accomplish, and they take all this information, and now they're going to go in session. The judge is going to go in his chambers, as if it were AJ, and he's going to sit in session. And he's going to evaluate and everything. And he's not coming out of that chamber room until the session's over, right? So that's what we want to look at. We want to look at this time now that Jesus is there at the right hand of the majesty on high. So let's consider, first of all, what we've already observed in Hebrews chapter 1 that can inform us about this current session of Christ upon the throne. In a previous message, we considered that in verse 3, when the Son, after having by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high, was properly to be understood as being in connection with His victorious resurrection from the dead, which served as a miraculous demonstration of His victory over sin, 
over Satan and over death. No one can argue against the powerful witness of the resurrection as being the Son's power and glory exhibited and rightfully enthroned as the living Son of God. That's what verse 3 was really teaching us. That when He successfully fulfilled all of His covenant obligations to be that propitiation, it was then He was exalted as David was communicated what happened to the right hand of the majesty on high. Because remember, we learned He left that seat of majesty to come down in the form of a man. So there was a session prior to this current session where he had already taken upon him human flesh and he rode victoriously over the grave and he's now sitting in session at the right hand of God. Thus, as you see in your notes, upon the successful completed work of the propitiation for the sins of his church, the Son, as if it were, we learn from verse 3, sat down on his throne at the right hand of the majesty on high and began the work that was described in Psalms 110 during what we could rightfully, and I'm going to use this term a lot, consider his mediatorial session. So as he, Levi, has accomplished that work, it's not like Jesus has checked out. He has been, as prophesied and communicated to uh, David, he has been exalted next to the Father, next to Jehovah's right hand. And he is there right now in this mediatorial session accomplishing everything that we learned about in Psalms 110. He hasn't taken a vacation, guys. He's not waiting to come and do the work in Psalms 110. No, Psalm 110 is talking in present tense. The Jehovah said unto my Lord, set down in my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So is Jesus just supposed to be up there carving wooden crosses, if I, if I may say it like that, and, and, and just waiting for a particular time where he's going to engage and do that? His current mediatorial session began, or we could say was inaugurated at his post-resurrection ascension. Amen? That's what verse 3 was teaching us. In fact, here's something interesting about verse 13 where we're at today. In fact, the use of the present tense form of the verb said he in the Greek, it denotes something which is fixed in Scripture as having once been spoken in verse 13, but it continues in its ongoing effect. And it's this use of original language that causes the theologians to correctly observe that this inspired writer is now less interested in the single event that took place in verse number 3 as they, as the writer is now in his uh, inauguration to an ongoing mediatorial office that he's accomplishing. That's what the writer's really wanting to emphasize in verse 13 by using that present tense of said he, which is different than what he did and how he used the Greek in verses 5 and 6. So what we've just simply gained at this point is just helpful clarity regarding the beginning of the son's mediatorial role and session, right? It, it was accomplished then. It happened then. It was done at that time. However, the text seems to suggest that this session of mediation as king and priest will come to an end upon the completion of the subduing of his enemies. Isn't that kind of there on the surface in the text? If that's when it began at his resurrection and ascension, it's implied that it has an end. It says, until your enemies are made your footstool. But look at the verse there. 
set on my right hand until I make thine enemy thy footstool. In other words, when the last enemy is subdued, the text is clearly implying that the mediatorial session will come to a close while the Son's throne and exalted station will continue on into eternity, evoking worship of His throne, His finished successful work, His mediatorial session of conquering His enemies has ended. Now, I've given you a very helpful verse from the writings of the Apostle Paul, which I think helps wrap up this heading of the beginning or the duration of the Christ's current session on the throne. And it leads nicely into our consideration about his current activities that he's doing upon the throne. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 through 26 in your handout. The inspired Apostle Paul gives us a glimpse of when this current mediatorial session will come to an end. And then we'll look at the activities of what Christ is doing upon his throne now. The inspired Apostle Paul writes, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. The context here of this letter is dealing with the the validity of the resurrection, the Christian resurrection. Verse 20, as you see in your notes, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that sleep. For since man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at when? His coming. So when are Christ's people being resurrected? At His coming. Verse 24. Then notice what happens. After the resurrection of Christ's people. Verse 24. Then comes the end. There's no span of time in there. Look it up, study in the Greek. It means just what it says. That when that happens, that's when, the end, that's when the end of this age is. Verse 24, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Verse 25, For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Who's the last enemy? The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And so we're getting a picture here that Christ, upon His throne right now, He's ruling and He's making His enemies subject to His power and His rule. The last one, the last enemy that must be subdued is death. And when that happens, His current mediatorial session is completed and He hands up the kingdom to the Father. I have subdued all things, even the plague of physical death. This text is very insightful for us. In light of our current heading dealing with this duration of the Son's current session upon the throne. For it clearly demonstrates and it puts into proper biblical perspective three things that I gave you in your notes. First, according to verses 23 and 24, Christ will return a second time to resurrect the dead and immediately following that event is the end of this age or the end of history. Two, that according to verse 24, upon that time, the Son will deliver up the kingdom of God, which will be in complete subjection under His feet. How? Evidence through the destruction of the last enemy. That's how it will be evidenced 
that this current session now needs to end when he removes his last enemy, physical death. And thirdly, regarding the current mediatorial reign of the Son that we're considering, it will remain or be in session until his second coming when he will arise to put a final end to the plague of physical death on that great resurrection day. So we have established that the Son's current mediatorial session began upon His resurrection and ascension and that it will last in power and effectiveness until His second second coming. However, what about the interim period? That is the time that is between His great ascension and His great return. What about that? What is the Son's activities during His current session while setting upon His eternal throne at the right hand of the Majesty on high? Well, for our closing moments today, let us consider now under the heading the activity of the Son's current session several things. We could say in short that the Son's current activities can be summarized in the seven verses that were spoken in Psalms 110. That could be a short summary of what He's doing right now. He is executing these things. Consider verses 1-3 through back in Psalms 110 which describe his current station as a conquering king, subduing his enemies. And let us ask the question, who are Christ's enemies? Who are his enemies? And how does he subdue them? Look at your sermon notes. You, you were his enemies. I was his enemies. Before he sent his saving grace, we hated God. We hated Christ. But in His glorious gospel work, what is He effectively, invincibly doing, brother? He is conquering all of His enemies. Look with me at Romans chapter 5, verse 10, in case any of you have ever gone cold to this truth. Romans 5, verse 10. When we were sinners, when we were what? No, not sinners. When we were enemies, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How? By the death of His Son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Christ on the throne at the right hand of the majesty on high right now is ruling and reigning, having dominion in the midst of His enemies. And one of the most beautiful pictures you could ever get of this is to go to the local jailhouse ministry and find Christians amidst the most vile, sin-hardened criminals of all of society. And yet they there are unashamedly proclaiming Christ in His goodness and His grace. They once were hardened just as you and I were. And what did the invincible Spirit of God do? Subdued their hostility subdued their anger and their pride to Him. Sometimes we get a picture of Psalms 110 verse 1 that this means that somehow or another Jesus is going to use a nation to wipe out all the Muslims because they're the enemies of God. Oh, indeed they are. But they're not one more enemy of God than you and I were. As we blasphemed His name, as we lived in the world, and we were hostile to everything that He stood for in truth and righteousness... Let us be careful that we don't get huffy and puffy about our sins not being so bad as those pagan sins out there. 
because we were just as much as an enemy of Christ. And thus He will in victory. And thus He will in conquest as a king warrior continue to advance His kingdom one enemy at a time, Naomi, by sending His Spirit with power and with glory and show them that they need to repent and believe upon Him because they cannot save themselves. And one by one, enemy turned what? Soldier. Enemy turned friend. The kingdom expands. The king enlargens his borders. And then, the very last enemy that he bled and he died for upon the cross, whom he tells us in the Gospel of John, that the Father gave him to be one of his children, when the very last one has been made a friend, has surrounded around him, as the Psalm 110 said, thy people in thy power will be around you. When that takes place, he will say, all right, this current mediatorial session has been accomplished. It is done. Now I will rise, I will return, and I will put it to an end to the plague of physical death upon creation. And then, his eternal session, right, of adoration. I was thinking of a way to phrase that. I would call it the session of adoration. The adoration of the eschaton begins. And we worship Him. And we glorify Him. Never think in any way, shape, or form that Jesus is not upon a throne of power doing kingly work now. He is. And it's an absolute miracle that there's anyone that's ever converted into the gospel. Because the Bible is very clear. We love our darkness more than the light. That's an absolute miracle and demonstration of kingly dominion over His creation, that someone would be converted. He subdues His enemies not through employing critical race theory. He he subdues His enemies not through some social gospel pragmatic technique, not through our turning the worship of Him into man-centered entertainment. He subdues His enemies the way you know you were subdued through the faithful proclamation of the gospel. This is part of the activity of the Son and His current reign. It is glorious. It's amazing. It's astonishing when you really sit back and think about it. Oh, but what about those who, who are made His followers? who are made from enemies into friends. Notice the psalm teaches that he's also a priest. That's the order of Melchizedek. This is what's described in verses 4-7. through That describes his current session also not only as a king, but also as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But who is the son being a priest for? Who is he being a priest for? Well, there's perhaps no better portion of Scripture, I think, that would help us to see who it is he's mediating for who he is being that sympathetic priest for than what you see in Romans 8, 33-39. Look along as I read. The inspired Apostle Paul here contending, of course, for the faith. And he says, Who shall lie anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again who is even at the right hand of God, 
who also, here's the beautiful words, makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any creature, nor any other creature, sorry, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who it said, you saw that in verse 34, is right now in session at the right hand of the majesty on high as a king after he subdues us. Oh, sweetly making intercession for us. And who of us in here would say, Amen, I need intercession on a daily basis. Amen. He is doing this high priestly work in Psalms 110 now. Now He is doing it. Brother, it's not some future eschaton where He's going to come back and the temple's going to be erected and somehow or another there's going to be sacrifices all you know substantiated again and all that. No, no, no. He is the high priest. The writer of Hebrews is inspired by the Spirit is going to use this as a springboard to just further unpack how Christ right now is our high priest. No other book in the Bible, young ones, talks about Jesus' love for you. Jesus' care for you. Jesus' sympathy for you than the book of Hebrews as your high priest making intercession for you. Now some of you are going to think, well, what about all the warning passages in the book of Hebrews? Well, that's exactly why you need to be reminded of him as your high priest. (laughs) Because when you lose sight of the fact that he is your mediatorial priest who has made sacrifices for you, the writer of Hebrews says, once and for all, you begin to want to bring your own sacrifices again and not trust sufficiently in His. It is important for us now to come full circle back to your favorite discussion that we've been having for over two months. Well, for about a month now. And that is angels. Right? You want to talk about angels more, right? Okay. (laughs) Well, we have to because the Bible does. Look now, in this current mediatorial reign of Christ, setting upon the throne, caring for you, subduing your heart, making you one of His followers, guess what? He uses angels. Verse 14, That's now we're tying in the whole theme of the chapter back to what we're doing today. It wasn't just an expositional Psalms 110. Here we are back here. We're coming to a close of the chapter. They, are they not all ministering spirits? They're not David's master. They're not David's king. They haven't been exalted to the right hand of majesty on high next to Jehovah. No, no, no. But they have their place. And their place is under the subjection of David's master, of the Messiah, of the eternal son, to be sent forth from him to minister to his people. To minister his people. Now in a day and age... Where all of us, I don't know, if, I'm sure we have a precious moments card at our house, I'm sure. And I'm not, I'm not telling you you can't buy precious moment cards with little angels and stuff and all that, okay? But understand that Jesus in His highly exalted throne, He does use angels. 
And when you look at redemptive history, when they are used, Colin, in redemptive history, it's usually acquainted with almost, I mean, a very miraculous event, you know? Um, The angels aren't coming to help you figure out how to water your garden is basically what I'm saying. But when they come, they are coming under the authority of Jesus Christ to reveal what his will is for for your life or for my life. But let us be very clear, when we look at the Bible and how they have come into time, space, and history by the voice of Christ to be used, it's been very infrequently. And usually when the angels show up, it's either a really good thing, or as we learn, it's a really bad thing. Somebody's getting a smackdown put on them, aren't they? Right? So, we come to the end of Hebrews chapter 1. We have, just as a recap, seen how the inspired writer wants to take the eternal Son, exalt Him in the highest possible way, has attributed to Him all of the Old Testament messianic prophecies that one can muster up to demonstrate that Jesus was the one that was promised to do all of these things, and He's going to use that anchor that He is the Messiah who purged iniquities last week we talked about who successfully purged us of our filth and our sins and sat down at the right hand. He's going to use that as an anchor to point them to now in their waywardness and warn them and have that as a backdrop. When you get your eyes off of that, be careful, be aware, lest you walk away from the faith. He's letting them know any of you, if you even have a smidgen of doubt about the truths that I'm laboring chapter one to lay down as a foundation, as the objective hope you have in why you are accepted by God, you're on a slippery slope. It's Christ and Christ alone. That's how we could sum up Hebrews chapter one, right? Christ and Christ alone. And it's really what the souls do, don't they? They singularly elevate the Lord Jesus Christ as man's only hope. And it minimizes all of creation, especially man's pride. But even the angels as well, as ever holding forth anything for us and restoring us to our Heavenly Father, right? And a forgiven life. Hebrews chapter 1 is Christ and Christ alone. Let's go to the Lord and ask His blessing. Our gracious Father, we thank You, O God, that You, Lord, have preserved Your Word. You have, throughout redemptive history, Lord, kept it pure for us today, that we can look back on Psalms 110 and we could see how You were step by step, further revelation by further revelation, showing the way to the Messiah. Lord, clearing the way to the coming of Your eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into time, space, and history to purge us from our sins, to be resurrected and ascend back upon on high, not to be inactive, oh no, as we've seen today, but through power and through glory, still executing all of the things that are spoken of Him in Psalms 110. It is a present reality. And as we come today to the Lord's Supper, we pray that You would refresh our souls that You would rekindle within our hearts the truth of what we have learned today about our exalted King and Savior, Jesus the Christ. He is, as the inspired Apostle Peter preached, He is the Lord 
and the Christ. And oh, how we are humbled under His crown. Oh, how we are helped by His kind mediatorial intercession and priestly sympathetic care for us. We come now and we just ask, oh God, that You would take some of the most sublime truths that ever could be considered by the human mind contained in chapter 1 of Hebrews and just let it be, oh we pray, a solace to our souls. Let it minister to us. Let it speak to us. Let it strengthen and encourage us. And if there is anyone here today, anyone at all, that has never viewed Christ as their Savior, have never saw the true reality of how their sins are the very thing that put Christ upon the cross to give His life so that they could have forgiveness of sin, I pray that You would open up their heart, that You would show them that they are not as good as they might think they are. I pray that You would show them as the Apostle James uh, declares that the offense of just one commandment, just one breaking of Your law makes a person as dark and as guilty as is breaking them all. I pray that You would draw that enemy to Yourself Help them to see that they are not your friend. Help them to see that they are, Lord, consumed with their own pride, their own self, the protection of their own reputation perhaps. Oh Lord, break down those barriers and draw them sweetly into a new loyalty to Thy eternal Son. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.